together. What glorious words right out of Revelation 5, our God. That great day that we anticipate when we will be with all of your saints of all ages gathered around your glorious throne singing praises to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to you, our Father, in your power and your presence there too, Holy Spirit, as we delight and glory in you, our great God, in full self-forgetfulness, captured with your beauty and with your glory and with your honor and with the grace that we have received. How we long for that day. Help us, Lord, to long for it at the deepest part of who we are, such that it would affect our affections, the things we pursue, our actions, our obedience, our loves in this world. We pray that that would all demonstrate that our hope and our citizenship is not bound here to earthly things, but is in heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And use your word even this morning to help us to have our minds set on those things, to glory in Christ Jesus our Savior, to learn from what you would teach us from your word. Come and meet with us, we pray, in the matchless name of Christ, amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles back to Matthew 22, and I want to apologize in advance, although I realize I'm not alone if I uh, sniffle or sneeze or stop to uh, blow my nose. Uh, I don't want to be rude, but I do have a little bit of a head cold that hopefully will be stayed for the next few minutes. Uh, Go ahead and open up again your Bibles to Matthew 22, 15 through 22, verses 15 through 22, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we come back to Matthew this morning, we are immediately, as we are consistently and have been, uh, thrust into a conflict between Jesus and those who oppose His ministry. This morning, they will come to Him deceptively, attempting to pit Him against the state or the crowds. And yet Jesus will, with perfect wisdom, confront their hypocrisy and lay before them and us the call to be singularly devoted to God's glory. Now to introduce our thoughts this morning, I would mention that it is a fine balance for the people of God to live simultaneously in this world and yet for the kingdom of God. In essence, Christians are citizens of two kingdoms, two countries, and two worlds. This is the language that scripture uses throughout. You'll remember in Philippians 3.20, Paul writing to the church at Philippi in whom, with whom Roman citizenship was greatly honored and uh, desired. He says this, our citizenship is in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of the faith of Abraham and others, he says that they were able to leave their present country because that was not their true home. In fact, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. In John 17, Jesus says in His prayer to the Father, praying for us and all believers, that we live in this world, but we are not of this world. We are not a part of this world. This world is not our true and is not our ultimate home. So we live simultaneously in this present world, which is described as the domain of darkness in Colossians chapter 1, And also as citizens of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of His beloved Son. 
We live in a world that is passing away, that is temporary, and we live in anticipation of a world that will not pass away, of the new heavens and the new earth that we just sung about in part this morning. So that is our situation as believers in Christ. We live for God's kingdom, God's glory, and God's purposes in this world. But how we do that, the details of how we live out our faith in God and our anticipation of this world to come, can be a problem for some. In the early years of the church, the state used its power to persecute Christians. It opposed those who were singularly devoted to the glory of God as He had then been revealed and has now been revealed in Christ. When God flipped the situation around 325 A.D., the state became then, instead of a persecutor of a church, a means for the advancement of the church and individuals. By the Middle Ages, the church's authority blended with the state, and the state was used essentially as an arm of the church to enforce matters of a spiritual and religious nature. Now, this was never a harmonious situation, and it was certainly never a right situation, and many problems flowed out of it. And it continued, however, even into the early years of the Reformation. It wasn't until God providentially brought about the situation in our own country, in America really, that the right balance between state and religion was found in some greater measure than had been known before. Namely, that the state became a means of protecting the rights of its citizens to worship God freely according to conscience. Now we see this relationship between state and religion being misused in our own day. For many of the secularists, the state is a means of controlling and suppressing religion and religious expression that it finds as a threat to its own ideology. Yet it is also true that some Christians in their pursuit of righteousness have put more hope and emphasis on the state to enforce righteousness and morality than they have on the power of the Spirit working through the gospel and the word of God. So the balance is not always easy to understand or to maintain. Now this morning, Jesus' opponents are going to try and use this tension between submission to the state and devotion to God to bring Jesus into conflict with both the Roman government and some among the crowds who are supporting Him. And He's going to, or they're going to use the issue of taxation. And yet, playing off of their deception, Jesus transcends that argument and drives home a more fundamental reality, namely this, that true worship and faith recognizes God's sovereign ownership of all things and renders all things to Him in worship and glad obedience. So let's read our passage this morning, beginning in verse 15 down to verse 22, and then we'll consider it more closely. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
and to God the things that are God's. And after hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Go back up to verse 15, and let's notice first the deception of the hypocrites. The deception of the hypocrites. And note first then their deceptive plot. Matthew begins, or verse 15 does, with then. It marks an event that is following sometime, most likely the same day, after the parables that Jesus has just given specifically in verses 33 through 44 of chapter 21 and verses 1 through 14 of chapter 22. There, Jesus exposed the wickedness and the culpability of the leaders for rejecting God's messengers and ultimately for rejecting God's Son. And they understood the parables were directed at them specifically. Again, Matthew tells us that in verse 45 of chapter 21, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. So they got it. And yet that produced for them really a a rough situation. They are trapped within their own hypocrisy and their own fear of man and their own hatred of Jesus who is constantly exposing their ignorance and their darkness. He's threatening to them. He's threatening everything they hold dear, namely the respect and the admiration of the people, the spiritual authority that they enjoyed in their eyes, and the supposed safety that they had from the oppression of Rome. And so they hate him, and they want him dead. This has been said many times throughout the Gospels, but this is becoming even more clear, more obvious, as Jesus is nearing his crucifixion and the time of his departure. But the problem is, is they know they can't do anything about it at this point. He says again in verse 46, when they sought to see him, of chapter 21, sees him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. And so that's their problem. They hate him, they are threatened by him, they are fearful of him, and yet they can do nothing about it. And the fact is, is that it's frustrating them to no point. And they're really getting to a point of exhaustion with having to deal with this man, Christ Jesus, and they want him off of the scene. Now this is nothing new. It's why the wicked hate the righteous. And it's why those who love wickedness hate Christianity. Why they hate and oppose Christians. Jesus said earlier in John 7 that the world hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. In 1 John 3.12, he says this, that Cain was of the evil one and he slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And that is precisely in large measure what's going on here. The more his light shines, the more their hypocrisy, the more their ignorance, the more their unrighteousness is exposed. And it is infuriating them. It's infuriating them, and it's always that way. Why do homosexuals and new atheists want to silence Christians? Because they want to silence anything that opposes their sin and their sense of moral freedom from God without accountability. Why do Dawkins and Harris and others hate Christianity? Because they want to live a life of self-exaltation and impunity for their sins and lives of self-will. That's always the issue. Masked behind fancy arguments, but at the core, that is the issue. And so here it is with these leaders. They want him dead, but they are trapped, 
frustrated by their inability to do what they want to do. And so they come now to try to discredit him, to try to discredit him. And so this is what Matthew says, that they plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. This term here that's translated plotted together, is, it's like having an advisory council. They came together to seek out what to do. They were engaging in joint planning. And this is not surprising that they would come in such deception. They are, in fact, acting like children of their father. We've already mentioned this. But Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. The devil has been a liar from the beginning. And so you want to do the deeds of your father. And that is precisely what they are doing here. His children model his ways. And yet this is also a striking example of spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness. These are not just any men. This is not just any nation. These are men who particularly know well the law of God. The nature of God as He has revealed Himself in the Old Testament. They understand that God is a God of truth. They understand that lying and deception and false witness is a sin. They understand the omniscience of God and that He sees and that He knows all things. And yet, all of that is simply cast aside as they willfully and premeditatedly and in full control of their actions plot a course of deception and lies as they come deceivingly to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in full control of their actions and their deception. As a matter of fact, we see this even at the end of the gospel account in Matthew 28, 12. They are again going to practice their deception by going, if you'll remember, and paying the soldiers who are watching the tomb, teaching them or telling them to lie about what actually happened. There is no end to the hardness of their heart and the darkness that they are living in. And we would be well warned to note that it can be very easy to know Scripture and the commandments To know about God and yet not love Him and obey Him. And the more that that happens, the more that we can build up a hardness in our heart to the holiness of God and be blind to personal sin and devoid of true humility and sincere love for God and neighbor, though we talk much about it. These men knew the truth. They knew the truth. And yet here they are counseling together, planning and plotting at their own attempts at deception. And yet we also see their cowardice, their cowardice, and they're coming in yet another layer of hypocrisy. Of course, they do not go themselves, but they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? The Herodians were essentially a group among the Jews that supported the dynasty of Herod or the Herodian dynasty. And what's interesting here, however, is that the Herodians are mentioned with the Pharisees. Now, they're only mentioned two other times in Scripture, in Mark 3, 6 and in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And each time the Herodians are mentioned, they're mentioned with the Pharisees and interestingly, not with the Sadducees, even in the next scene that we'll enter into next week. Now, what makes that interesting is this, that the Herodians were more theologically in line with the Sadducees, but they were actually on the opposite end of the spectrum, both politically and theologically, from the Pharisees. But every time we encounter them, they're with the Pharisees plotting against Jesus. Why? Because these two groups, as much as anyone, saw Jesus as a threat to their interest, though for different reasons. 
And it is amazing how a common hatred against Jesus is uniting these groups that any other time were in opposition to one another, but they were singularly united and devoted to their hatred of Jesus and their desire to rid themselves of Him. And so that's quite striking. And so they come. Now, why did they not come themselves, the Pharisees? Well, that's obvious in some sense because they knew if they went themselves, especially after their very public conflict with him that began even as he entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry in chapter 21, that their motives then in such flattery would be easily deceived by the crowds. And so they did not come themselves, but they sent their minions, if you will. They sent their disciples and those who would do their evil, deceptive bidding for them and along with them. It is just another way for them to go as wolves in sheep's clothing. So here the wolves are sending their disciples dressed like sheep to destroy and to deceive. Again, just like their father the devil. And that's how it works. Deceivers do not come dressed like deceivers. Deceivers do not have a label on their shirt or on their coat that says, I am deceiving you. That's not how it works. Deceivers want to draw you away to their own designs and to their own ends, but they cannot come with that intention. They have to come deceptively and make you think that you, they are for you, that they are desiring your good, and yet their motives are quite different. And again, is this not the very character of Satan that we see at the beginning of Scripture did he come to Eve saying, I want to destroy you? I want you to fall from God's good purposes for your life? I want you to rebel against the Holy One so that you might die? No, he didn't. He came with seeking a, supposedly her good interest and that of her husband, Adam. Let me just mention to you one passage that you're probably already thinking of just to drive this point home a little bit more. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says of those false teachers, he says that they are deceivers. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And then he says in verse 13 of chapter 11, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, coming to them in the name of Christ. No wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So they're false, prophet, uh, false uh, deceivers or false men who are deceivers who are going here plying the trade of their master, the devil. And he says here that they came to trap him. This is a very descriptive term. It's a hunting term. It's used actually in the Septuagint in Ecclesiastes 9.12. Just listen and you'll get a feel for, for what it means. Man does not know his time like fish caught in a treacherous net, and here's our term, and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Like a bird that unwittingly travels into the net of a trapper and once the bird is there and has taken the bait then he's scooped up by the hunter and he is captured and killed and so these men use these questions like bait or the net for the bird 
the hunters that are ready to capture them up. And they want to capture Jesus and take him as their prey. Now notice then how they come to him. First, with deceptive flattery. With deceptive flattery. And flattery is by its own definition, deception. Flattery is essentially to use words that are specifically designed to achieve an undisclosed end. To win someone's favor for your own purpose. It's not a compliment to be called a flatterer, nor is it a true compliment that comes from a flatterer. Webster's Dictionary defines that term this way, to praise excessively, especially in a calculating way. That's a good definition that that is exactly what is going on here. And they are essentially going to flatter him in two categories. The first is regarding his truthfulness. And notice down there in verse 16. And they're going to use the term truth and truthfulness twice here in their comments. They say, teacher, we know that you are truthful and you teach the way of God in truth. Now the irony and the hypocrisy here is almost unbearable. They are those who are the fathers of lies and they're coming themselves lying in the very statement that is appraising him for his truthfulness and for being truthful. And what makes it even greater is the fact that they're praising him for truthfulness while at the same time lying and deceiving shows that they know the virtuous nature of telling the truth and yet they are utterly casting it aside for their own wicked designs and purposes. Again, it's a picture of incredible spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. They ascribe truthfulness to his very character and nature. They say, you are truthful, you are truthful. It's a staggering that they would say this. And interestingly, it's the first time this term is used in Matthew and its first usage is coming from the mouth of liars who are speaking against the very word of truth and truth himself. They secondly ascribe truth to his teaching. Specifically that what he teaches is right about God, right about how to know God, right about how to serve God. And this is striking because here they are these disciples of the Pharisees and so to say this publicly and it's assumed that they would have been known to be disciples of the Pharisees and particularly the Herodians would have been known to be against Jesus so by saying this they're almost publicly acknowledging their own faults previous opposition to Jesus and so it really is quite staggering that they're saying this next they give him flattery in regard to his integrity They said, you defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Now, in fact, in this case, the ESV captures this phrase a little bit better, is is more literal in its translation. It says, you do not care about anyone's opinion. A standard lexicon puts it this way, you court no one's favor, and you do not care what anybody says or thinks about you. And the second phrase is equally as striking, and again, In this case, the ESV captures it a bit better. It says, you are not swayed by appearances. Literally, that could be translated, you do not see the face of man. And the basic idea behind both of these phrases is this. You do not act out of concern for man's opinion, but care only for what is right and for what is true before God. It is the highest possible statement of his integrity that they could make. And though they were lying, it is exactly true, as we well know. And Jesus himself said, I do, I speak 
Just as the Father has told me, and I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. It is true in reality, but it is not truly coming from the hearts of these deceivers. Nonetheless, though they do not mean it as a sincere compliment, but as a way to cause him to let down his guard, to build a false credibility with the crowds, to make them think well of their sincerity. And now that they think they have won the favor of the crowd in Jesus, they pose a question that is intended to put him at odds again with either Rome or the crowds. And so they say, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? And with this, they are assured that they have him, that there is no escape for him, that he is securely in their trap. And what are they asking a poll tax here is a, is a general head tax. It's one of several taxes that they had to pay as Roman, as Roman occupiers, be those who lived in Rome. This is a head tax. It was paid by all males and possibly even by females to the Roman government. Now, there were different perspectives among even the Jews about taxes. Although the concept of taxes itself was a constant source of irritation and a reminder to them that they were, in fact, subject to to Rome, that Rome was the dominating political authority and power. And this tax was particularly vexing to them. Now they phrased the question as if it were a question about the interpretation of the law. They, they phrase it as if what they really want to know is how are we to understand God's will on this and how do we are to apply that will. And that is again not uncommon among the rabbis. In fact, this is now the fifth time in Matthew alone that they will enter into a debate with Jesus about what is lawful, about what is lawful. That in and of itself is not uncommon. While the question, however, is regarding the law, the real issue is not clarity on the teaching of Moses, nor on the oral tradition for that matter. Their deception is much more subtle than that, much less easily detectable on the surface. What they're really doing in this question is they're seeking to pit Jesus against two general mindsets that are present among the crowds and those who were filling Jerusalem. Now some among the Jews accepted the tax, taxation of Rome. They didn't like it, they didn't care for it, but they accepted it. And some among that group then saw the Romans as God's means of punishment for the sin of the nation. And they taught a general submission and not rebellion to the Roman government. And believe it or not, the Pharisees fell largely in that category. They theologically understood that they were there, that God had put them under the subjection of Rome because of their sin. And that was part of their motivation for wanting to inspire obedience to the law so that God would change their situation. Not unlike God's counsel to his people through the prophet Jeremiah when he told them in Jeremiah chapter 27 to submit to the rule of Nebuchadnezzar and not to rebel. And so some had that mindset. And then of course others had that mindset such as the Herodians and Sadducees simply because they sided with Rome and they saw Rome as a source of their own advancement. But there were others who rejected the tax. 
And they saw it, to quote one, as owning royal authority and selling out to a pagan government. So this would include then the zealots, two of which were even among Jesus' own disciples, or the Sicarii, another group, as well as others, who were violently opposed to the authority of Rome, and they wanted to overthrow Rome. And in fact, that would eventually be that mindset that would be the beginning of the Jewish revolt in 66 AD, which, as we know, would end in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and then several years later, the destruction of the last remaining Jews on the Mount of Masada. And so this was a very real issue among the crowds. And they were, they were people who were on both sides of the issue. And so the question is designed then to pit Jesus against one of these groups and lose him, put him in a lose-lose type of situation. If he were to say no, then he would alienate the first group and it would be tantamount essentially in the minds of many as inciting rebellion against Rome, which they already feared. And you remember back in John eleven forty eight, their plot to want to kill him was to, because of their fear that Rome would come and take their nation away. As a matter of fact, in a parallel passage in Luke 20, or account of this, he, Luke adds this in verse 20, uh, of Luke 20. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. Listen to the purpose. So that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. And so they wanted him to say something that could be taken as rebellion against the state. And in fact, they will use those charges during his trial nearing the end of his life. But if he were to say yes, if he were to give the opposite answer of yes, then he would also alienate the second group who saw this tax as an offense against God and a humiliation to the nation. And thus he would lose credibility also in their eyes and even bring about their resistance against him as well as against Rome. And so this is a difficult situation. This is a subtle deception. And they think then that they have Jesus in their grasp. They think they have him. Either way, he's going to lose support and alienate some of the crowds and they are going to weaken his influence. However, he is unaffected by their flattery, which is no better than a Judas kiss. And he sees right through their hypocrisy. And let's note, secondly then, the discernment of the righteous one. The discernment of the righteous one. First was the deception of the hypocrites, but now there's the discernment of he who is perfectly righteous. Again, Jesus is completely unaffected and unmoved by their flattery and lies. He sees right through them. And the reason, as the title of this part says, is that he is righteous. In John seven eighteen, he says this, He who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And because of that, he is not easily swayed, he is not easily moved, he is not moved at all by their false flattery. In fact, you want to know who's persuaded by flattery? Who's persuaded by flattery? Those who love it. Those who love it. They're the ones who are affected by it. Those who love the praise of men, those who think that they, and, or who want the honor and the praise of men and want to be exalted in their sight, and because they are like that, they think this is going to be effective on Jesus. But the fact is, hypocrites and vain people love 
flattery. It's what they live for. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is going to excoriate some of the same group in the next chapter for that very reason. Because they love the honor of men. And so this kind of flattery works on self-loving and vain people who find their deepest satisfaction in being well thought of. However, flattery does not work so easily on the humble. Humility, righteousness, and commitment to the truth produces discernment. And Jesus is the very embodiment of those things, and so he sees right through it, and he hates it, and he calls it out for what what it is. Notice first here, then, the confrontation with the hypocrites in verse 18. Jesus perceived their malice. He perceived their malice. A term often translated as aware of. In other words, he knew what was going on. The idea is here to discern, to have insight, or to perceive. He knew what they were doing, and he knew their intentions were wicked, which is the term behind what's translated as malice. It could also be wickedness. He knew the evil desires of these teachers. And so he had directly attaches here their hypocrisy to the condition of their wicked hearts. And he says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? And there could be no more piercing indictment than that. And that word pierces through the armor and the mask of their lies. And in my mind, hypocrite is one of the most frightful words in all of Scripture. And the single greatest charge that Jesus could lay against his adversaries, which he will do repeatedly. And the fact is that there's nothing in Scripture that God seems to hate more and to react as strongly against as religious hypocrisy. The strongest word in Scripture, whether it be from the mouth of the prophets in the Old Testament or from Jesus himself, is against religious, self-righteous hypocrites, which is what he's dealing with here. Essentially, it's people who mask over an inward love for sin, an inward love for self with religious activity. And I want you to notice something here. Let's not pass over this. The intensity of his words. Jesus is not a wimp. He's not a wimp. Nor is he some hapless teacher subject to the will of man. He's not some blue-eyed, long-flowing, blonde-haired teacher who just kind of floats around with gentle words saying profound things. That's not who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the Holy One. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah whom John the Baptist had said earlier, he, with his winnowing fork in his hand, he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now John is looking forward to a future date there of Christ's return. But that is part of who Christ is. And we see that side of it here when he confronts hypocrisy. And so he calls them out, and he confronts them, and he confounds them. Look at verse 19. So he tells them to bring them a coin, and they do. They bring him a coin. He says, show me the coin used for the poll tax. So they brought him a denarius. Denarius we're familiar with. We've run across this several times. It's a common coin, common wage for a day's labor. Now, there were a variety of coins, however, in circulation among the Jews and in the land of Palestine. And some were minted by the Jews themselves that did not bear an image uh, on it. 
But there were also Roman coins, and particularly the silver coins and the denarius here, that were minted by Rome. And so they bore Caesar's image on it, showing his ownership of it. Now the coin handed to Jesus would most likely have the image then of the then emperor, Emperor Tiberius. And on one side of this coin, you can look it up on your own and find pictures. On one side of this coin, it would have had a picture of the Emperor Tiberius and the words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Years earlier, the Roman Senate had given or ascribed divinity to Caesar, and so those who followed in his line were accredited also with that same status of divinity, almost a son of God. And if you flip the coin around on the other side, it was the image of someone seated with the inscription, High Priest. And so this was idolatry. This was for uh, breaking the commandment of God who forbid making an image of his anything in His image or anything that would claim to be God. Now the Jews strongly opposed the image of Caesar in Jerusalem. However, they did not largely oppose using the silver Roman coinage with his image. Though it had the image of Caesar, they had to use it for one sense because of the taxes, but also it indicates possibly their own greed. In other words, they were much more offended by bringing an image into Jerusalem, which Pilate had actually tried to do earlier, and it produced uh, a revolt. And they said they'd rather die than let this image into Jerusalem. But here they had no problem carrying a Roman coin with that same image in their pockets. Which means that for some, they were driven more by greed than they were by conviction. So anyway, they bring it here to Jesus. They bring this coin to Jesus, and he asks them a simple question. Whose likeness or image, more literally, an inscription is this? That's an obvious question. It's a question, or you could say it's a question of the obvious. And he's going through this process and asking them so that it will force the impact of his answer even more deeply on their hearts and on their minds. And also to further indicate them for their ignorance and wickedness. And so they answer his questions. Question, they say, Caesar... The coin bears Caesar's image. And Jesus says, render or give or probably more literally pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this is an absolutely stunning answer. Absolutely stunning. And we would expect nothing less from the incarnate word. Now Jesus is not avoiding their question, just the opposite. He's getting at the heart of it. He's getting down to the very issue And he's addressing the very underlying principles that are important for them to grasp and us to grasp and that they are not getting and that is obvious by the very question that they're coming to him with. Now I want to note here then three parts, three aspects, three underlying principles or things that they are missing and that we ourselves need to hold on to in Jesus' reply to them. And the first one is this, the first one is this. That government is a divine ordinance from God and all authority is from God. Now the Jews understood this. They understood this. They understood that there was no king but the king that God set on that throne. They knew that. They knew that they were under Rome ultimately because of God's sovereign hand. Daniel 2 captures this well. He says in Daniel 2... 
21, interestingly, in a very prophecy about the kingdom of God. Daniel says this after the secret was revealed to him uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had put before him. He says, it is he, meaning God, who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. The Jews knew that. They knew God's sovereign hand and that there was no authority but what comes from God. And Paul is going to play on the same thing in Romans chapter 13. I'm just going to read the first part to you. We'll come back to the rest in just a minute. In Romans 13, Paul says the same thing, certainly having the Lord's words here in mind when he says this to the church at Rome. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. In other words, God gave government as a means of common Grace. Government provides services and protections for the citizens, and therefore they are to submit to it. They are to submit to it. Again, recalling even the words of Jeremiah from the Lord that says, Look, Nebuchadnezzar is a wicked kingdom, but it's a wicked kingdom that I have established over you, and therefore you are not to rebel against this king, Nebuchadnezzar, because if you do that, you're actually rebelling against my own will for you. And it's a similar situation here. And Jesus is transcending and putting on the, or showing them the greater principle that, look, you're missing the fact that Rome is the Roman government and over you because I have established them. Yes, governments are composed of fallen people and they use their power unjustly at times and for selfish ends or for ways that seem unreasonable, but that authority is something that God has given And so the point is this, that God has established government, even the wicked government of Rome, and even the wickedness that is in our own government today and of any other nation. Ultimately, it's established by God. And so the first premise is this, is that God is the one who established government's authority in general and specifically in your own situation, whatever government you're under. So their authority to collect taxes and make laws is the authority that God gave them, and they were to submit to it. And in fact, submitting to this authority is an expression of our submission and obedience to God. Let me give you one other portion of Romans 13. Just listen. He says this in verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath. In other words, the wrath that would come from the government, the authority that God has established if you rebel against them. But also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Clearly, Paul has in mind here the very words of Jesus in the gospel. He says, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. He says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to remind you that these words from Peter come in the context of a government who is persecuting God's people. A wicked government. And yet he says this in verse 13. 
Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The fact is that because God is behind the authority of government, obedience to God is expressed in our submission to the governing authorities. That obviously does not mean that God's people, Christians, are not to pursue the defense of righteousness within the legal parameters of their government system. It does not mean that we are not to do those things that we can do and are legally allowed to do to fight for what is right and for what is true. And the only time that this is not the case is when government seeks to enforce, to make, to compel us to do something opposite of God's Word or to forbid us from doing what God's Word commands. That's the only time that those laws are then set aside for God is the ultimate authority. In other words, I may not like taxes, nor the waste, nor certain city ordinances, nor excessively slow speed limits that I'm sure you've encountered too. But the order... But to order us to, but they, but we must obey them from a government that God has established. However, to order us to perform a homosexual wedding or to provide for an abortion or not to speak the word of God, they are then exceeding the authority that God has given them and the purpose for which God gave it to them. And obedience to God then trumps everything, and we obey God no matter what. And we refuse to do those things and we refuse to be silent about the word of God. That's the only time that authority then is to be broken. I'll mention these passages. I won't read them both for time's sake. You're familiar, but Acts chapter 4. Read that one. Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. Of course, the gospel is going out. The Jewish authority did not want them to speak the name of Christ. They tried to stop them. And so it says in verse 18 of chapter 4 of Acts, and when they had summoned them, these are Jewish leaders, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. In other words, you cannot from your pulpit speak the Word of God in all of its parts with freedom. You have to only speak what we say is proper for you to speak. What we determine is right for you to speak. What do we do, beloved, when that becomes the case? He says in verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. In this case, when they threatened them further, they let them go. And then they glorified God for all that had happened. Similar situation in Acts 5, 28-29. The fact is, we must obey God rather than man in that situation. And so then we are justified in ignoring the laws of government. But outside of that, we are to obey them. We are to submit to them, whether we like them or consider them fair or not. Secondly, that's the first principle. The second principle, the first principle is God has established government. It is an ordinance by God. The authority comes from God. Secondly, Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to bring a kingdom that was designed to overthrow Rome. That was not his intention. That was the deluded thoughts of many among 
the Jews who wanted him to do that, but that is never what he came for. That was not what Christ's kingdom was about. And so Jesus gave that own, his own testimony of that before Pilate. In John 18, 36, he says this, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. If Christ's kingdom were a matter of this world, then it would be a matter of taking up the sword and fighting against all who opposed his name. But he's saying, that's not it. That's not it. Not only would my servants here do that if that were my kingdom, but a legion of angels from heaven would do that and would keep me from being taken by you, a wicked man and a wicked people. But that is not the realm of Christ's kingdom for now. That kind of rulership of Christ is coming at another time in its fullness. It will be established, Matthew 25, 31, when Christ comes to sit on His glorious throne. Revelation 19, when He comes to destroy the wickedness of men from the earth. Then that will be established, but right now that is not the case. And so here the principle is this, essentially, don't be preoccupied with the superficial or elementary concerns of this world. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That kind of rebellion about taxes is not what his kingdom is concerned about. What is at the heart of his kingdom? Well, he's already mentioned it many times. Repentance, repentance towards God, Matthew 4, 17. Humble brokenness over sin, blessed are the pure in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Suffering for the name of Christ, blessed are you when men persecute you and cast insults at you and do all kinds of things of wickedness against you for the sake of my name, for your reward in heaven is great. Obedience to God, Matthew 7.21, it's the one who does the will of God who will be in his kingdom. Humble childlike dependence on Christ is what the kingdom is about. It's about abandoning all for the sake of Christ. He who has found his life must lose it. He must deny himself. He must take up his cross and follow him. It's like the rich young ruler. You must abandon all and entrust all to me. It's about the humble, repentant faith of the tax collectors and the prostitutes in chapter verse 21, verse 31, who were getting into the kingdom of God because they got it by the grace of God. It's what Paul described in Romans 14, 17 when he said this, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom that Christ came to purchase. But it is not the kingdom that they wanted. And beloved, that is not the kingdom that many religious people and, so, and professing Christians want today who fill the churches who you can find them concerned about many good things and things that we should be concerned about in our culture and in our society. But they're concerned about those things far more than they are for Christ and for His Word and for humble obedience and love to Him. And that's when it becomes a problem. 
So Jesus is essentially saying your whole paradigm of thinking about the kingdom is wrong. These are not the issues that God is primarily concerned about and they display a superficial view of God's kingdom. The real issue at stake here is a matter of worship to God. The worship to God. And let's note the third point here then underlying Jesus' response. The third point is this. That true worship sees all things as belonging to a sovereign God and renders them to Him in glad obedience. That's the issue. That's the real issue. That's at the heart of it all. Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's. So I ask you, what are the things that are God's? Everything. Everything. Everything is God's. Everything belongs to Him. All of life is His. And that's what we are to give to God. Everything. Jesus, again, had already said you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. What does Christ demand? What are the true demands of the kingdom? Everything. Your every plan, your every desire, your every possession. That's what Christ calls for. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. To worship God with that kind of abandon to respond to His grace with that fullness of faith. All of life is His. Jesus is going to address that same thing that we'll touch on in a couple of weeks. But in verse 37, what is the heart of the law? What is the heart of what God demands from not only His people, but from His creation? Is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Notice he does not say, you shall love the Lord your God with a good portion or most of your heart, with a good portion or part of your soul. It's with everything. With everything. Just as Jesus did. Just as Jesus did. So we, by that same Spirit, and by the grace, and by our union with Him, are to offer to God that same love and adoration we offer it to Christ and we offer it to the Father. This is what Jesus is getting at. Now he already hinted at this earlier, the same idea in Matthew 4, 8. He said this, or this is in Je- the devil's temptation of Jesus. And in fact, this is the temptation that these leaders and these had fallen to, but it is the one that Jesus, so glorious in his perfect holiness as God the Son, did not fall to. He says this in verse 8, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, the devil, said to him, the living and incarnate word, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. All of it. I will give them to you. You are a king. You came for a kingdom. I will give them to you. But that was not the kingdom that Christ came for. And he was not about to do it any other way than with a way that displayed perfect worship to the Father and obedience to him. And so Jesus said to Satan, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's the issue. That's the issue. We are to worship God and to serve him only. Let the kingdoms of the world have what is theirs, essentially. Our sole concern is to worship God, understanding all of life as His and our lives as redeemed for His glory and for His service alone, to adore Him and to love Him and to honor Him. 
We give all of our life to him in complete and unqualified obedience that flows from a heart of trust in response to his grace, in response to his promises, in response to all of who he is. All things are from him, all things are through him, and all things are to him. That is something that was totally opposite of their thinking. Totally opposite. They are dumbfounded by this, or in verse 22, they were amazed. They were amazed. They came in hypocrisy to deceive him, but they left amazed at his wisdom. Sadly, we have no reason to believe they left converted, that they left humbled and changed, but they certainly left amazed. And this then is the desertion of the hypocrites. And leaving him, they went their way. And beloved, when that is the case of someone who may have questions about Christianity and questions about the gospel or who attack it, the intentions are not to find out the truth that they might serve God in truth, but it is only that they might discredit him. And when they can't answer to the truth, what do they do? They leave and they walk away. Not they responded with repentance and trust in him and followed him all the way to the cross. But that is the call for us. That is the call for us. We must beware that our hearts are not distracted also with these things that supplant the affections of our heart from what is eternal to what is earthly. But we are to give to God what is God's and that is everything. Everything. So as we go to pray, let us be encouraged and reminded by this in our own lives and for those who may not know him and say that I cannot say that my life belongs totally to Christ and totally to God. I cannot say I wake in the morning and what directs what I do, what I think, what I feel is what would be pleasing to him who has redeemed my soul. If that is not what is in your heart, if that is not what derives your life, And if you don't find conviction over the fact that it doesn't do that, making you seek his face again and again each day, then, beloved, there is no reason to think that his life abides in you and that you abide in him. And so I would encourage you to do, all of us, to do that self-examination if you see those things lacking in your life and come to Christ. He is a ready and a willing Savior, but he will not Receive those who will not bow their knee before him in love and trust. I pray that for us in this room, that is not the case. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, for your wisdom. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. The very fact that this scene, this encounter is recorded for us in your holy word is an expression of your mercy. It is there for us to consider, to think about, to pray to know the will of you, our God, to see the wisdom of you, our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to consider freshly our attitudes towards authority in our life, to consider freshly about what our affections are that govern us and that guide us throughout our days. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who unfolds it for us and gives us understanding and eyes to see and ears to hear. May you do so in all of our hearts. And for those here who may not have those eyes when they came in here this morning, we pray that they would not end this day without a true love for you, Christ, and faith 
in you and commitment to give their lives to you in full trust and obedience, trusting only in your death and your resurrection on their behalf and living a life that responds in praise. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work in their hearts. Thank you again for this time that we have. We pray these things in the matchless name of the one who has released us from our sins, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. David.